Jesus is our Messiah, and uh, that is a very specific, very important title um, in Jewish prophecy. The Old Testament uh, tells us that an anointed one, a Savior, a Messiah, uh, the word Messiah in Hebrew, the word Christ in Greek, um, means the anointed one of God. Um, We believe uh, when the Old Testament talks about this anointed one, it refers to the Messiah, the Savior from God who would come to do what we could not do for ourselves, undo the wrong, but also accomplish the good that was without, uh, out of our reach, um, out of our capability and possibility of Isaiah chapter um, 53 tells of the Messiah. There's another passage from Isaiah uh, 48 uh, of where God says, I myself will roll up my sleeves essentially, and I will come down from heaven and do the job for my people that they are looking to do themselves, trying to do themselves, but just can't seem to get it done. And it's because there's something preventing us from doing it um, on our own, but God made a way. God provided a way, and that is through Jesus. And Jesus um, is the Messiah, and we actually find tonight in our text that Jesus um, introduces himself for the first time, and really the only time, um, one-on-one to somebody. He reveals to someone that he is the Messiah she and everyone was looking for. So if you've got a Bible, we're in John chapter 4 tonight. We will hopefully get through the first 26 verses of this text tonight. Um, really kind of serves to, uh, to kind of separate the chapter, split the chapter in two. Um, we'll continue with the, the rest of the chapter next week. Uh, but tonight is another familiar text, another familiar chapter, familiar episode uh, where Jesus encounters a woman at a well. Um, and while you may know this story very well, I think there's something fresh and helpful for us to learn tonight. So I hope, uh, regardless of how many times you've heard this story, I've preached this story. In fact, in fact, um, very um, first Sunday um, that I preached here um, on this uh, years ago, um, when uh, when I first uh, came to fill in for uh, preacher Grady, um, I preached John chapter four. So um, really, uh, a very special chapter to me um, because uh, of of how God led me to this text all those years ago, and uh, I did not consult my notes from 2000 and whatever. Um, I don't think that would have been a good idea, um, but apparently um, God uh, used, used that um, and used this text and used me all those years ago to uh, begin a work, um, and uh, he's, still, he's still doing it, and that's uh, pretty awesome, pretty incredible. Um, and uh, those milestones may not mean much to other people, but they mean a lot to me. Um, and there are certain chapters of the Bible that uh, always uh, will always be special, um, regardless of, of what the context is. But uh, this one is one of those uh, that stands above and beyond for me. So uh, it'll be a very special text to get into tonight. But so we're going to dive into this text. Uh, this is a long chapter, so again, we'll split it up into a couple of weeks. Uh, this story begins right after John the Baptist essentially announces his retirement. So it's very important that we kind of bridge the gap from three to four, uh, because last time on the last episode, uh, last study in John, um, John essentially, John the Baptist essentially says that his days are numbered. Remember, they came to John and they said, John, John, your movement was so big and now it's so small. And Jesus, the guy that you baptized, is sort of his own movement and his is growing and yours is dying. And he's got all the popular you know, people and all the, you know, the, the trendy stuff's around him and everybody's singing songs about him and no one's singing songs about you. And you know, John, are, are you bummed out? Are you upset? Are you disappointed? You know, they really prodded John. And, you know, people would never try to do that to a minister, would they? Um, but, or people in general, right? But uh, John was just dealing with all these questions and all this antagonizing and all this pressure. And, and John, without batting an eye, without getting angry or upset or being rude or, 
or, or, or um, in a, you know, being um, disorderly, John responds and says, Listen, y'all, everything that I received from heaven is God's to give and God's to take. And if it wasn't for Him, I wouldn't ever have, a, have had a purpose or a mission in this life. And, and, and he tells them uh, that a man can receive nothing unless it is given to him. And he says, listen, what I had, my ministry, what I continue to have, it's not mine. God gave it to me, and, and it's God's to take back if He wills. But listen, y'all, I'm, I'm just another vessel. I'm just another guy in the line of many before and that will come after me that was put here for a single purpose, which is to point people to the Messiah. He says, remember, y'all, I told you, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. But I have been sent before him, I have been sent for him. And John compares himself to uh, the best man at a wedding or to, 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 a, to someone in the wedding party. John says, listen, he got the girl and I didn't. And whereas maybe you would expect me to be jealous or disappointed or frustrated, I'm not. I'm happy for Jesus. Because the better Jesus, the more glory He gets and the greater He is and the more honor and, 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 and exaltation given to Him, that benefits me. And if y'all build me up to be somebody I'm not and I get a lot of praise on this side, that doesn't mean anything for me in eternity. Because as soon as I shut my eyes, it's gone. But whatever I can do to exalt Him and to build up His kingdom and to increase His work, that is gain for all of us. In eternity. And John gives that famous line, I must decrease so that he might increase. So John was pressed about losing ground and he welcomed it saying that it was all a part of God's plan. He was glad because Jesus was the future. Jesus was the Messiah and he is the Messiah. He and his movement were just getting started. So of course, of course, this is all coming after the Pharisees sent one of their own to investigate and pick Jesus' brain. Remember back in John 3, before the, the, John, the Baptist episode, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and says, we know you're a man sent from God because no one could do the things that you do if not from, if you weren't from God. So Nicodemus came from the Pharisees to pick the brain of Jesus. They were very concerned about Jesus' identity and his agenda because it threatened their order and it threatened their you know, leadership and their influence. And suddenly, suddenly, John retiring and deferring all the attention to Jesus, they looked even worse and they were more insecure than ever because they had opposed John they had opposed Jesus, and now John was deferring all the attention to Jesus, so Jesus seemed on an even more uh, you know, uphill swing, and it seemed as if he was more of a pressing threat than they may have initially thought. They had lost control. They lost their chokehold on the religious front, and people were leaving their community and going after Jesus, and this made them very nervous. So they began considering their options. What can we do to stop Jesus? Now, why would they want to stop Jesus if Jesus was from God and was pointing people to God? Why would they want to stop Jesus? They didn't have a good answer. They just felt threatened. And sometimes when we're threatened and when we're scared and when we don't really look at the big picture, we can do some irrational things, some hasty things. And Nicodemus tried to walk them out of that line of thought, but of course they were all focused on what they had in front of them. So they began considering their options, what, they might, what their next move might be, wondering what Jesus' next move might be. And Jesus, sensing that what they were up to, sensing that they were up to no good, he decides it's time to take the movement back north. 
He says, guys, we've had a little bit of a Jerusalem um, you know, splash here, uh, but we need to go back north for a while because some people are up to no good. And eventually, <laughs> I'll give in. Eventually, I'm going to surrender. Eventually, they think they're going to take me down. Eventually, I'm going to give my life for everyone, but it's not time for that yet. And they're up to no good, so let's kind of retreat to a more safer environment for a while. So he takes the gang back north to Galilee, and all the while they think they're going to a safer place, and then something directs them to a completely different place that they were not expecting to find themselves um, headed for. So with that set up, John 4, verse 1 through 4 is how we enter the story. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, his disciples did, so it kind of lets us know that Jesus wasn't doing the baptizing, which is important in a whole other realm of thought, but we'll continue. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. So he senses that the Pharisees are a little upset, a little threatened, they might be up to no good, so let's retreat back north. So he begins to lead the disciples up north along the Jordan River. And then verse 4, it's such a powerful verse. But he needed. King James, he must needs. He needed to go through Samaria. Now, I don't know what it was like to be Jesus. I won't ever know what it's like to be Jesus. I don't know what it was like to be Jesus during his earthly ministry. He admitted that he submitted his will to the Father in a way that even... that. Even things he could know, he didn't know. There are times that Jesus responds to questions and says, you know, that's for my Father to know. Now you think, well, Jesus, aren't you and the Father one? Aren't you from God? Aren't you a part of the Trinity? And of course, yes, 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 he is. But Jesus would answer questions like that, whether he could have answered the questions more clearly or not. He always wanted to be in submission to his Father to model for us that we should be in submission to God. Jesus, the perfect Son of God, showing us that we ought to be children of God in submission to God's sovereignty and God's authority. So Jesus may have known certain things that he didn't lead on that he knew. I don't know how that works. I suppose I never will because I'll never be God, the Father, the Son, or the Spirit. So it's okay. It's okay to just say, I don't know what it was like to be Jesus, and I don't know what it's like to be in the mind of Jesus, because I never will know what it's like to be Jesus. So there are some questions that we come to in the Bible where we don't have an answer, and that's okay to not have an answer, because Jesus clearly knows uh, how to have a plan, and, and he was following that plan as it was decided from the beginning. So Jesus begins a journey, and the Scripture tells us that he changed directions took a different route than was typical or expected. The Scripture says that he was journeying, journeying from Judea to Galilee, but something led him into Samaria. Now, I'll show you a map in a little bit that this wasn't really out of the way. It just wasn't the way you typically went from Judea to, to, to Galilee. It wasn't an area. It wasn't a neighborhood. It wasn't a country. It wasn't a pathway that you took for a lot of different reasons, mainly for your own safety. If you were a Jew or a Samaritan, you did not intermingle or involve yourself with one or the other. So for Jesus to all of a sudden say, hey guys, I've got to take us in a different direction. We've got to go down a road that y'all don't want to go down and I don't even know if I want to go down, but something inside of me says we've got to go this way. Again, I don't know if Jesus knew in advance he would be taking this route. I don't know if he just decided halfway up the road, hey, we've got to turn around and go the other way. I don't know what it was like to be in his mind, in his heart. 
I don't know if he set out knowing or if it dawned on him along the way, but I know, I do know this. Sometimes God moves before we move. Sometimes he moves as we move. And sometimes he moves after we move and we have to move again. You hear that? Sometimes God moves before we move and we know clearly what we are supposed to do. Other times, God moves as we move. So as we're going, God begins to make a way. As we're going, the water begins to part. The walls begin to fall. For example, in Exodus chapter 14, the water parts before they step onto the ground, right? They step onto the ground the dry ground, when the water has parted. But in Joshua chapter 2, they step into the water before it parts. Now the moral of the story isn't that God always does one or the other. It's that sometimes He makes a way before you move. Sometimes He makes a way as you move. And other times, you go a long way before you realize it's not the way and you've got to turn around and go a different way. Again, there's no rhyme or reason. Sometimes God just has a plan that we don't understand. And maybe we will figure it out. Maybe we won't. But the good news is, God's plan is best. So sometimes, you know, sometimes you figure it out. And sometimes you have to work it out. Regardless, God has a way. And we should be sensitive to God's Spirit. Again, we can make a doctrine out of Exodus 14 and another doctrine out of Joshua, 12, Joshua 2, but I don't think that's necessary and I don't think that's right. I think we just need to be sensitive to what God is doing at any given moment, at any given time, in any given circumstance. So again, we don't know what it was like to be Jesus and if he made a decision in advance or along the way to go this other direction, but we ourselves find ourselves in situations where we might not know what to do and we need to be sensitive to God's Spirit. In the book of Acts, as the disciples are branching out beyond Judea and beyond Israel, and as they begin to go into the area of Greece and Rome, the Scripture says it took Paul a few attempts, a few times to figure out where his next journey would be, where his next mission would be. Acts chapter 16 says, As they went through the region of um, Figuria and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia... Now you think, well, why would God not want them to do that? It's just that that wasn't where God wanted them to go at that given time. So that, that phrase, forbidden by the Spirit, is pretty strong, isn't it, right? That means God says, hey, no, you, stop sign, turn around, don't drown, right? This is not where you should go. And then it says, and when they had come to Asia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So the example I show you that is, I show you that for is as they were going, they realized, hey, this isn't right, that's not right, but we're going to keep moving because we got to figure out where God wants us to go. And it was more of a, hey, as we go, God's going to show us what we need to do. But they had to be sensitive to the Spirit. Now let me tell you how sensitive Paul was. That's who that story is about. Paul was so sensitive to the Spirit. That even when the Spirit led him in a direction that he knew probably would not be the easiest road, he still had to go with the Spirit. Acts 20. I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me. They said, well, why are you doing this? You know you're going to get arrested. You know you're probably going to end up in jail. You're probably going to end up being killed if you go back to Jerusalem. And Paul said, listen, y'all, y'all, i got to tell you. I am bound, as in there's something around my neck, and I am being drugged by the Spirit. Now, Paul walked with his own two feet. Nobody drug him to Jerusalem. But Paul said, listen, I am so sensitive to the Holy Spirit. I have got to go where He wants me to go. And it's as if I'm being drugged there. 
He says, I know this. Except the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. He says, I know it's going to mean trouble when I get there, but the Holy Spirit is moving me and I've got to do what He says to do. So I'll show you those examples because we don't know what it's like to be Jesus. We don't know what it's like to be Paul, but we're closer to Him than we will ever be to Jesus. I get the question all the time. The question I ask all the time, how do we know? What the Holy Spirit or where God wants us to lead, where God wants us to go. How do we know if God wants us, God will show us before or during or after or whatever? How do we know? And I got to be honest with you, I don't know. (laughs) I don't have a stock answer. I can say this though, and if this is just as you seek out the will of God in general, if you want to know God's will, you've got to read God's word. Right? I mean, you know, that, that's a pretty basic and, and it might sound like a cliche answer, but that is the answer. If you want to know God's will, you've got to read God's Word. And even if God's Word doesn't speak directly to what you're going through because it was written all those years ago, I believe the Holy Spirit moves from page to person. I believe the Holy Spirit will take the Word of God and apply it to your life and will show you what you need when you need it. There's no disputing that if we want to know God's will, we've got to be deep in God's Word. If you seek God's Word, you will find God's will. And I think I can say that with confidence because I believe in whom I, have, I trust whom, in whom I have believed. Hebrews chapter 11 says that without faith, it's impossible to please Him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. And we seek Him by reading His Word. If you, someone says, I seek the Lord but never reads His Word, I doubt that they're seeking the right Lord or the right God or the real God. So, but it's more than that. If you want to know God's will, of course, read God's Word, but also participate participate in God's church, in God's community. And, and by participating in the community, I mean pray, worship, give, fellowship, invest yourself into the whole. Invest your I into the we, right? Invest your life into the body of Christ. Whether you do this at home as an extension of, obviously it all leads back and directs to the body of Christ. Romans 12, Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies. You know what that means? Plural. Now, this isn't saying that we don't worship God at home, we don't worship God at work, then we can't worship if we're not always in the house. But what is this contextually speaking of? Your role within the larger body of Christ. Because you've been saved into the body of Christ, it matters how you fit in and how you participate within the larger community. Present your bodies as living sacrifices, right? And uh, living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable, let's go back, to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that, it, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. So what is Paul? How is Paul saying we are transformed? By becoming a part of the body of Christ, by investing in the body of Christ, by participating in the body of Christ, in the community of God. We are transformed from what we were in the world and what we can be, who we can be in the work, in the, work, uh, the community. Of God, and by doing so, we will discover, we will know God's will. 
So I know if you pray and worship and give and fellowship and function as a member of God's church, family, and kingdom, you will know God's will. And I don't, I'm not saying this to be arrogant to other people who don't know or haven't participated and therefore they don't know or don't read. And I don't think we should walk around like we're better than other people because we might know more than they. But I, should, I do think it's important that we model this. And if someone says, hey, how do you know? Or how do you, how do, how do you come to that? Don't be ashamed to say, listen, I read the Word. I participate. I'm a part of God's church. And by being a part of these things, God makes a way. And God shows the way. Now, back to our story. Jesus is on His way to Galilee. And it dawns on Him, I've got to take a different route than normal. And the, literally the Greek for verse 4 is... It was necessary for him to pass through Samaria. It was necessary, and and this word necessary, you've heard me talk about this throughout uh, my preaching. This word necessary is the Greek word day, and it's referred to by scholars and by, by, you know, uh, uh, people that study the Bible as the divine day. It's D-E-I is the the Greek uh, uh, word. It refers to this divine must that we see laid on people in the Scripture that reflects this, this, this moving of God, this pulling and pushing of God through our lives. We see this throughout the Gospels, throughout the book of Acts. Jesus tells us there was a divine necessity, a divine necessity, a must, laid on Him to pass through Samaria. And Samaria was a most undesirable and unwelcoming place. Now, undesirable as in, you don't want to go there. And unwelcoming as in, they don't want you there. So it wasn't just that Jews thought they were better than Samaritans. Samaritans thought they were better than Jews. So it was a mutual two-way dislike of one another, distaste for one another. So Jesus says the Spirit of God is leading us to this place that is undesirable and unwelcoming. And let me show you how undesirable and how unwelcoming it was. This is a map of Israel. I apologize. It's kind of small, but it's the best we can do. Um, if you look at the very bottom, the very center of the map, that is Jerusalem. And if you were a Jew passing from Jerusalem to the northern country of Galilee, of, uh, up to the area above uh, in the north part of the map, if you were a Jew passing from the north to the south, you would traditionally take that red route along the side of the Jordan River because even though it would be quicker and more convenient to travel through the center which is Samaria, you would take the farther route because you would do anything you could to avoid passing through Samaria. They didn't want you there, and you didn't want to be there. You might not make it out alive if you go there. They did not like one another. They did not tolerate one another. If you want to talk about racism, just in every every way you can imagine, these people did not like each other. I won't go into exactly why. It's just a matter of the same reason why some cultures just don't like each other in our world. It's not right. It's sinful to be this way. But even people in the land of Israel were this way. So they would go out of their way to avoid Samaria, and Samaria would go out of its way to avoid the the Jews. But Jesus was driven by a divine compulsion in a spiritual alt to take his uh, movement into uncharted territory but into kingdom territory. You hear that? Even though they had determined this to be uncharted territory, Jesus proves to us in this movement, in this I gotta go to Samaria, Jesus is saying this is still kingdom territory. You might think it's not 
part of my plan. I don't want to go there. God doesn't expect me to go there. Guess what? God expects you to go there. Right? Jesus takes his movement into uncharted territory because it was kingdom territory. God is interested and concerned about every person, every place, and we clearly see Jesus make this known in this episode. Now, verse number 5 tells us, He came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, I think it's pretty incredible that Jesus, we, we see this, uh, this uh, you know, telling uh, verse that tells us that Jesus got tired. He was a man. He get, got tired just like we get tired. Ministry is difficult. <laughs> Ministry is tiring. It's taxing. It's hard work. But it's always worth it. It's always worth it. And here we find Jesus is exhausted, yet God was sovereign even in this. God was sovereign and Jesus being exhausted because it made him go to a well where he would meet a very specific someone. Now, Jesus was tired from his journey. He meets someone who was wearied from her life. He meets someone who was just wearied from the decisions that she made, maybe decisions made for her, the way the world had treated her. He meets someone that was in great need for what even the well couldn't give her. Verse number 7 tells us, A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, he asked, could you give me a drink? Hey, you got a big pot there. You got a big, you know, water jug there. You think you could give me a drink out of that, ma'am? And she, based on the way he dressed, based on his accent, based on his appearance, she could tell that he was not from around there. Um, She could tell that he was a Jew, and in this culture, a Jewish man dare not speak to a woman that was unaccompanied by her husband, Uh, all the more a Jewish man speaking to a foreign woman in her territory nonetheless would speak that the Jewish man was up to no good. And perhaps this woman, based on her own character, maybe she was up to no good. So these two meet. She doesn't know what his motives are. He can read her mind, so he knows what her motives are. But he says to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Of course, they didn't want to be in Samaria any longer than they had to be. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Maybe she's trying to just get a read on Jesus. You know, what what are you here for? You're by yourself asking me for a drink. And I'm sure she may have had a lot of things going through her mind. and, And who knows what she was interested in or looking for. A lot going on here. Her motives, his motives. Verse number 10. Jesus answered and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who it is who and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So now she's thinking, oh, he's crazy. He's crazy. Who what who 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 talks like that? Got to get used to being around Jesus. He says some things that are up here sometimes, and we're still down here. Yeah, if you knew who I was, I would give you water, and, and, and it would quench your thirst better than this well would ever quench your thirst. And she's thinking, what? Now, Jesus is continuing a trend, a trend where he would always take the context of everyday life 
and use it to communicate the gospel. We see this throughout the gospel. First time in John chapter 2, he's at a wedding. He uses the wedding to point to God. He's in the temple. He uses the temple to point to God. He's talking to Nicodemus about his heritage, his family history. He uses that to talk about a new birth um, that we need. Uh, And now he's going to use this well as a point of reference for what God wants to do in this woman's life, what God wants to do in all of our lives. Now, this isn't just any context. All of these are Jewish religious fixtures. The ceremony and religious symbolism is very you know, well uh, you know, uh, observed in the wedding and the temple, of course, in the conversation with Nicodemus. This well, particularly though, calls back to the age of the patriarchs. It's, we're told that it was Jacob's well, which had been Isaac's well, which was part of the land of Abraham. God called Abraham to follow him into a new land, an uncharted land, so he be- could become a nation for God's glory, for the world's blessing. And Abraham's son Isaac had trouble believing and trusting the promise of God. And when things got tough, famine swept over the land and many of the wells that Abraham had dug dried up. So Isaac began to move south, looking for new land to dig and new water to find. And unlike Abraham, God would not let Isaac seek refuge in Egypt. Abraham went to Egypt for years and stayed and got water and got supplies and came back richer than anyone. But Isaac wanted to do that, and God would not let him seek refuge in another country. He said, stay where you're at, Isaac, because I'm going to show you the way and bless you where you're at. So if you read the story of Genesis 26, Isaac searches up and down the hillside looking for water, looking for land to dig wells in. But Isaac continues to be in these quarrels and disputes with the locals um, that say, hey, this is our land and that's our well. So Isaac has a hard time finding land to dig for water on and put a well in. So finally, the Lord comes to Isaac and reminds him, it's all going to be okay. And it stick with me. I'm going to make sure you have more than water. Genesis 26, Isaac hears from the Lord. I am the God of your father, Abraham. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servant dug a well. And we see this well is a, the, the, the well is a theme that we read throughout the Scripture. And of course, the wells of Isaac and Jacob were still to this day these, these uh, landmarks in the Jewish and Samaritan community. So wells became a picture of this change of heart, this change of resource, change of power source, change of energy, energy source, where men like Isaac and Jacob and Moses would come in different seasons of their life, and they would find these wells that were pictures of something greater. These wells were pictures of a deeper spiritual well to draw from as God draws His people in. So anytime you read of someone coming to a well in the Bible, usually they're wearied, Usually they're out of energy, out of time, out of money, out of luck, everything you can imagine. And they come to these wells thirsty for something to drink. And at these wells, something supernatural happens. Happened with Isaac, happened with Jacob, happened with Moses. At these wells, they realize there's something deeper and spiritual. There's a greater well to draw from. As God is drawing me in, He's going to draw we're going to pour into me something that this water can't do for me, something that this, the world can't do for me. So notice that as you read the Bible. Anytime you see a well, open your eyes a little wider because God's going to give you a, a pretty a big reminder of the greater need that we have. Likewise, He does this with this woman. The woman said to Him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? 
She says, I don't know why I'm talking to you. You seem pretty crazy, but hey, I'm also out here in the middle of the day and I'm all alone, so you probably think I'm crazy too. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from, from, from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? I mean, do you know of a reservoir that I don't know of? I mean, do you, do you know of, I mean, because I, you know, I don't know what their folklore and their you know, myths and legends of their day. Do you know where the, you know, some fountain is that I don't know of? I mean, can you show me where that is? I mean, are you greater than our patriarchs who dug these wells that have provided for us sustenance and water for all these years? And then Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Of course, because water doesn't quench your thirst forever. And then he says, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. And that is trigger language for, for you know, divine speech, right? Everlasting life. It perks this woman's ears up and she says, oh, 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 you're, you're some kind of a prophet. I mean, everlasting life, you know, that, that, that makes me think of the prophets. You're talking about something God wants to do inside of me. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, you're, you're catching on. Great job. But, that, but this text, uh, after this, it, this, the tone shifts. As she begins to get the idea, she says in verse 15, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. She says, you know, I, I, I hear what you're talking. I, I see what you're saying, Jesus. You know, I, I, I know you know I'm here because I've got some stuff going on in my life and I'm looking for something to quench my thirst. It's never going to quench my thirst. I hear you, Jesus. I'm looking for something like you're offering and can you just give me a drink of this water because I need it. And he says, I know that you need it. That's why I'm here. But from here, Jesus makes the conversation a little more difficult, a little more personal, a little tough. And the reason is that Jesus knew that something in her needed to be drawn out before she could be filled with better things. See, when, when God gets our attention, you won't find a person in this world that would not say, living water, everlasting life, I want that. But sometimes we push back when, it, when we're addressed... Because there's something in us that needs to be taken out before we can give, be given something better. In verse number 16, Jesus says, Go and call your husband and come here. She's thinking, What? She says, Go and call your husband and come back. He's given her a chance to be honest about her situation, about her morality, about her choices. She says to him, I have no husband. He says, yeah, you don't, do you? You have had five husbands, and one of the one whom you have now is not your husband. I think, Jesus, why did you go there? I mean, you had this woman. She was there. She was interested. She was talking to you. She was buying what you were selling, and then you make it difficult, and then you bring up this, this, this moral failure in her life. I mean, Jesus, you had this woman on the hook. She was about to say, I believe, and you had to bring up her past. You had to bring up her sin. He said, yeah, I did, because that had to come out before what I could, be get, what I could give her could go in. Think, is that necessary? Did you have to bring this up? And remember, Jesus is both grace and truth. He has a sovereign way of navigating through the challenging matters to bring about a change of heart. And this is why Jesus is able to change hearts that we can't change. 
Because we open our mouths and people just look at us like, we, who are we to say? And sometimes that's going to happen anyway. But the Word of God, the work of God, the Spirit of God has a way of navigating through those challenging matters to bring about a change of heart. And this woman reacts like most react when you bring up faith in their involvement, when you bring up faith or involvement in church or relationship with God, when you make it personal. Because again, the conversation changes on a dime once more. She deflects talk about a relationship with God by talking about religion. She knows Jesus is about to get personal. She knows that I, she said, I want the water that you offer. But, and Jesus said, yeah, but you got some stuff that's got to come out. And she said, whoa, 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 no, I don't want, I don't, I can't, I can't, I can't do that. I can't talk about that. That'll convict me. That'll make me uncomfortable. I don't want to address my past because I don't want to talk about that. So I'm going to push back in your direction, Jesus. You want to talk religion? You want to talk about my faith? I'll talk about my faith. Verse number 19. I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. You Jews worship in Jerusalem. You say that's the only place you ought to worship. She says, okay, okay. You want to talk religion? Let's talk religion. Listen, y'all have your ways and we have our ways. And, you know, eventually my way is going to get me to God and your way is going to get you to God. But let's just not get personal. Because I just, I don't want to, I can't talk about my commitment to God. I can't, I can't, you know, I don't think that I should have to go into that. And if you're asking me to give up this, to say yes to you, I'm just not going to go there. Isn't that how a lot of us respond when God wants to get to the heart of the matter? We throw the shields up. We throw the wall up. We throw the, the, the barrier up. She talks about this tradition and that tradition, this belief and that belief, avoiding making it personal. Nothing wrong with her tradition. Nothing wrong with her history and her culture. Whether it's new or old, that's okay. But this is about bigger and better things. And this is just a sidebar. But she wants to make this all about their, their tradition and their style and hey, you know, we Baptists do this and y'all Catholics do that or y'all Lutherans do that and, you know, Protestant. We all have our styles and hey, you know, whatever. We don't want to make it personal. Let's just talk about the stuff that doesn't really matter. If we find ourselves more passionate and more informed about the what of our tradition or trend than the why, then we've missed the point. And we might miss God. Now hear me on this. The why is the most important thing. Because behind every tradition or every trend, there's a why. Sometimes the why is legit, sometimes it's not. But if we find ourselves more passionate about the what, or more informed about the what, she doesn't know why they worship at the temple or why they worship on the mountain. She just throws the shield up because that's something for her to hide behind. That's the thing she's been brought up in, and it keeps her from making it personal. And Jesus cuts to the chase in verse 21. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. He said, let me tell you something. I'm about to tear, I'm about to blow everything up. No temple, no mountain. We're gonna, we're, I'm changing the entire script. You worship what you do know. We worship, what, uh, for, uh, we worship for the salvations of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus said, Listen, let me t tell you, ma'am, you've resisted making this personal. And that's why you can continue to come to this mountain and worship, and yet you haven't addressed your sin. 
You can continue to come through these motions and do the same thing everyone else does, but you have not addressed your sin, and that's why your heart is still empty, and that's why you're still chasing after the wrong stuff. Until we address your heart, your life's not going to get any better. Notice what Jesus does. He shifts the focus from worship and religion. He shifts the focus from a place to a posture. He says this is not about where you're at or what you do. It's not about what you worship on or where you worship at. It's about how you worship. The spirit that you worship in. The spirit that you worship by. Jesus makes worship more about a who than a how, a what, and a where because the who is the Savior. The what and the how and the where are not. This isn't advocating a certain style, but it's analyzing what worship means for us. Verse 25, the woman says, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. She says, sir, I, you know, you're, you're taking this to a very personal place, and the only person that's going to ever be able to do that is the Messiah. So yeah, you know what? I've got some sin in my life. Yeah, all these rituals and things that we keep going through, they don't help me, they don't help nobody. But the way you're talking, you're acting as if the Messiah has come. <laughs> I haven't seen anybody that resembles a Messiah around these parts. And then Jesus says, I who speak to you am He. I am the Messiah you're waiting for. This is bigger than a mountain. It's bigger than a temple. It's bigger than a song or a style. This is about our response to God, our response to Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the Savior. He's the Word of God. He's the favor from God. He's the Lamb of God. He's our new wine. He's our new platform. He's our new birth. He's the one that said, I must go there for you. The one who went out of his way to make a way for us. What are you going to do with that? What do you do with that every single day of your life? That Jesus went out of his way to make a way for you. What do you do whenever you find yourself emptied and drained by the world? Where do you go? What do you turn to? What do you do whenever you find yourself being confronted by the things in your heart that are in the way of God? Do you throw the shields up? Do you hide behind religion? What do you do when you just go through the motions of life and nothing's changing? God's truth confronts us with the good news of Jesus, and the good news of Jesus begs a response of spirit and truth. The gospel can never be met with a neutral response. You hear that? The gospel elicits a response of either hallelujah or no thanks. The gospel draws out and deserves a response. Jesus is the Messiah. So when we define our faith, it doesn't begin with I do this or I go here or I give that or I believe that. It starts with Jesus is the why that leads to the what. Jesus is my why. 
And when you wake up tomorrow, Jesus is your why you've got to get out of bed. Why you've got to seek the Lord. Why you've got a better day coming. Why you've been given a second chance. He is the why, and that determines your what. He is the one who drives you and motivates you. He is the one who has given you eternal life, who gives you access to the well that will never run dry. He is the why. He is the who. And that determines the how, the what, and the where. And if we focus on the why, if we focus on the who our lives will be completely different when we give a spiritual, heartfelt, genuine response to God's truth. So when God comes to you in the difficult situations of life and He makes you uncomfortable, when you find yourself run out of energy, run out of time and ideas, consider who Jesus is. Consider what He wants to do, what He wants to take away, what He wants to add to. And consider what your response should be to coming face to face with Jesus, the Messiah of God. Rex, if you would come, just play a verse or two on our, of invitation. I want to give the opportunity for the altar to be open for anybody that might need to come and have a fresh drink from God's well. Father, I love you. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the Word. Thank you for the message you've given us from the Word. Lord, if anybody comes wearied by the world looking for a drink of that everlasting water, I pray that you would give them a reminder that Jesus is the way. He is the only way. He is the Messiah of God. Father, maybe somebody would confess that there's some stuff in their life that's got to be poured out before you can pour in to them. I pray that you would do just that tonight. Remove what is in the way and supply what needs to give them, what put them in the way. Father, for the rest of us as we worship you, Lord, let us focus on the why, let us focus on the who. And that's Jesus, the Messiah. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.